Welcome to the Holsey B. Mark radio station. Listen, share, follow. Be part of the journey. Listen to things from cryptozoology, UFO, comedy, music, interviews, Freddy the Free Car Show, and much, much more. Enjoy the show. Hi, welcome to the Holes of Mark podcast show, and tonight my guest is Jim Curtis. Jim announces the publication of Decoding Dylan, Making Sense of the Songs that Change Modern Culture, ISBN 978-1-4766-7845-0 from McFarland Publishers, a book offers a fundamental new interpretation of the great songs from the 60s that made Bob Dylan a legend and revolutionised American popular music. In place of the traditional image of Dylan, the 60s, classic 60s rebel, Decoding Dylan draw, draws on Dylan's own revelations in his memoir chronicles, as well as numerous facts from the New York cultural scene that show that Dylan was a serious craftsman who worked hard at mastering songwriting. Not content with usual verse and chorus structure of work songs, he continually experimented with stresma and rhyme forms. Dylan's early years in New York gave him cultural experiences that he could not have imagined. While back in Minnesota, he discovered French abolitionist poets like Charles Baldadecaire, whose challenging, disturbing poems made him patient with good-hearted but limited folk songs of people like Peter Sager. When Susie, Rachel, Dylan's first girlfriend in New York, took him to see Picasso's paintings at the Museum of Modern Art, he had blown away. So much so, he says in Chronicles, he wanted to be like Picasso. Dylan has never said anything like that about any other artist. It was artists like Bolladeir Picasso that Dylan had in mind. He called his Equinox-making 1965 album, Bringing It All Back, as many American artists before him had done. Dylan undertook the task of assimilating European high culture and translating it into distinctly American idolism. Many people have called Dylan a mystical poet, and with good reason. His great songs, Mr. Temporary Man, Desolution Row, A Visions of Joanna, form a trilogy and begins on a windy beach that ends with an explosion of consciousness. Author Jim Curtis is a bridge builder. He builds bridges between regions, region, religions and, I think it's regions, and cultures, just as Dylan does. He, Dylan does. he grew up in Tolupo, Mississippi, and says his hometown hero, Elvis, before arrived there. Seeing Elvis gave him a lifelong commitment to rock and roll, he said he wrote a book, Rock Era's Implications of Music and Society, 1954-1984, but rock and roll and popular culture are only part of who he is. He's also a PhD in Russian and has written a lot of, about Russian literature. He can't figure any reason not to enjoy both Leo Trotsky and Elvis Presley. He wants to persuade other people that they can, both, can enjoy both of them too. Curtis says, you never think about Dylan in the same way after you read this book. And after that lovely bio, and I'll just turn that off a minute. Wait, Jim. What's the most important single thing music fans need to understand about Bob Dylan? Here's what you start with. Bob Dylan, throughout his life, has dealt with a fundamental, inescapable paradox. On one hand, he's an extreme introvert. He is very uncomfortable with other people. He is very uncomfortable with social situations. On the other hand, he is one of the most charismatic performers of our time, someone who's given thousands and thousands of concerts. He deals with this paradox in a variety of ways. If you have read any of his interviews that are collected in the book, for example, Bob Dylan, The Essential Interviews, or if you know anything about the things he says about himself, you realize that mostly he plays word games. He does not and cannot take questions like that seriously. So he creates a little verbal fog around himself because the inner self is something he's never going to reveal to people. 
he reveals only very limited parts of who he is and what he does and what he thinks. This appears, for example, in his performance style. If you think about the difference between Bob Dylan on stage and Bruce Springsteen on stage, you see there's a very great difference. Dylan just comes out, sings his songs, and leaves. He doesn't introduce himself, he doesn't introduce the band, he doesn't do any of the things that lead singers usually do. Bruce Springsteen, on the hand, comes out, he talks to the audience, he jokes, he makes contact with the band, he does, hops around, he does a variety of things. Dylan doesn't do any of that because he has, in effect, no public persona that he can present to the world. He presents himself through the world only through his songs, and then he leaves. It's a remarkable, remarkable paradox, and it's lasted his whole life. In your book, Decoding Dylan, you refer to something called markers of creativity that appear in the lives of high achievers in the arts like Dylan. Well, here's what I started with. The reason, one of the main reasons I wanted to write the book is that it seemed to me that people were so overwhelmed with Dylan and his amazing songs and achievements that they were thinking about Dylan as though there would never been any other gifted people. Sure, Dylan is a genius, but he's not the first genius in the history of Western civilization. There have been lots of other tremendously gifted high achievers in the arts. And some very smart people in psychology have asked questions like, are there any common features in the lives of high achievers in the arts? And in fact, there are some. Let me give you a couple of examples. Although I'm sure that we would like for all people, all young boys in particular, to have warm, nurturing relationships with their fathers, as a matter of fact, very few high achievers in the arts have good relationships with their fathers. Something happens with the father. There's a divorce. The father leaves home. The father dies at an early age. Um, it's... There are a variety of ways in which this is configured, but the predominant feature of the lives of so many high achievers in the arts is an impaired relationship with the father. The extreme example of this is something whose called boy is called the posthumous son, a boy who dies, uh, who is born after his father dies, so he never knew his father at all. There are three of these very high achievers: Isaac Newton. Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and American President Bill Clinton. In rock and roll, there are other less dramatic versions of that. Guitarist Eric Clapton, for example, is an illegitimate child. His father left his mother at an early age during World War II, went back to Canada, where he was from. John Lennon's father abandoned the family when John was three years old, and so forth. The point is that this connection with the father that's absent was also absent in Dylan's life. He says in Chronicles, my father and I lived in different towns. It's not so much that his father was an awful man, it's just that there was no connection between them. His father was content to be a businessman in a small town that would never have satisfied Dylan. So as a result, when this happened to a very gifted boy, he reaches out into the world. Look for a father figure. Look for a mentor of one kind or another. And the stories of Dylan's early years in New York are filled with his searches for a father figure. Somebody who make up somebody he never had. The most obvious example, the one that people talk about, is Woody Guthrie. But Woody Guthrie, his infatuation with Woody Guthrie didn't last long. And what I suggest in the book is that the real father figure, the real mentor in Dylan's life, probably the most important single person in his whole life, was somebody he never met, the painter Pablo Picasso. As I said, Picasso is the only person of whom Dylan has ever said, I wanted to be like him. So there's a very interesting dynamic that occurs with very gifted young boys. That's one of the markers of creativity. Another one is birth order. Birth order is like destiny in families. Dylan, like, for example, uh, a number of other <coughs> rock stars like Brian Wilson, for example, is a 
and his firstborn with a younger brother. But what happens in a family when you're a firstborn with a younger brother? What happens is that you're always bigger and smarter and stronger than your younger brother, and this gives you a sense of your of confidence, of the fact that other people will do what you tell them to do, that you have authority over them. If you look at the biographies of really high-tier people like NFL quarterbacks, CEOs of major corporations, over and over again, you'll find that their biographies are usually with those of either only children or firstborns with younger siblings. So those are two of the markers of creativity that appear in Dylan's life and also appear in the life of a large number of high achievers in the arts. Uh, what are markers of creativity? Uh-huh. Yeah. What about them? The, um, um, what, um, what role did Susie Retorio, Dylan's first girlfriend in New York, play in his life? Oh, this is tremendous. This is a key element of Dylan's evolution that people miss. I think because they're so fascinated with folk music and the idea of Dylan was a folk singer and so he was fascinated with Woody Guthrie. But when Dylan came to New York, January 1961, he was a hick. He was an unsophisticated hick by his own account. He was a poor student in school. He didn't take learning seriously. And he was tremendously gifted, of course, but he was very unsophisticated. When he met Suze, that started to change. As her name indicates, she's Italian. She was an art student. She loved art. She loved painting. She was a sophisticated young woman. She took Dylan to the Museum of Modern Art, as I said, where he saw Picasso's painting, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, and it was a huge revelation to him. It's one of the most important things that ever happened to Dylan. Because when he saw that painting, a couple of things happened. He first of all realized that he had a fascination with the visual arts, something that continues very strongly to this day. Started in an early during early during the period in New York, and he also realized that you don't have to please people to be a great artist. You can create provocative even disturbing works of art and be considered a great artist. That, I think, is what Dylan meant when he said, I wanted to be like Picasso. Because the Demoiselle d'Avignon, for those who don't know the painting, is a huge, disturbing, strange, bizarre painting. And it's considered really the beginning of modern art in the 20th century. Why did you say that Chimes of Freedom was a key turning point in Dylan's career? Chimes of Freedom is a turning point because it uses anesthesia. Synesthesia, I'm sorry. Synesthesia, for people who don't know the term, is the representation of one sense in terms of another sense. Like, for example, you might say the scent of the color yellow, which combines a visual stimulus and a sensory stimulus. When Dylan uses, in the refrain, the Chimes of Freedom flashing. He's using synesthesia and it's he's right on the cusp of having one foot in folk songs and the other foot in modern poetry. Chimes of Freedom make plays homage to folk songs, to the uh, civil rights movement in references to people who are, who are unarmed on the road of flight. But what it does is to express Dylan's amazing discovery of French symbolist poetry. And this is well documented. That when we have, there are two artists in particular, Charles Baudelaire and Arthur Rimbaud, who wrote strange, weird stuff about, you know, smelling colors and doing things that were provocative, that used language in a way that distorted its literal meaning. We know that Dylan had an anthology of French symbolist poetry, that he studied it very carefully, that he annotated it, and I believe that The Chimes of Freedom is the first public expression of the way he was turning away from folk music, which has 
pretty bland, straightforward imagery once you think about it. And he was beginning to explore the new world of European modernism. In your book, you identify three songs that you call Dylan's Transcendent Trilogy. What are these songs and how do they fit together? When we think about great creative artists, we realize that their creativity doesn't occur in nice, simple chronologies. It's one of the mysteries of creativity, really, as to why certain ideas, musical ideas for composers, visual ideas for painters, occur to them and in what order. There's no rhyme or reason, and I think, and actually Picasso himself was very clear about saying he himself did not understand how it worked. simply came from his subconscious. So with that in mind, it's very helpful not just to examine Dylan's songs in terms of going from one album to another album to another album. From, for example, Highway 61 Revisited to Blonde on Blonde and so forth. Rather, if we examine the evolution of Dylan as an artist, as a songwriter, which is my ongoing emphasis in the book, then we realize that there are three songs that come together that create a trilogy and show us how Dylan evolved in an astonishing way. The third song, Mr. Tambourine Man, and let us completely disregard his total nonsense, Dylan's statement that, oh, he was inspired because he saw somebody with a big tambourine one time. That's exactly the kind of thing that Dylan says to throw people off the scent. Because he knows people like that kind of, it's a simple explanation and has little meaning, little relevance to the greatness of Mr. Tambourine Man. The key phrase in Mr. Tambourine Man is being on the windy beach. He's on the beach, and what kind of a place is a beach? It's a transitional space. The beach is not the land, and it's not the sea. So when Dylan is in that transitional space, it's an expression of the first stage of the strange and really uncontrollable, unpredictable evolution that he was caught up in. When he was on the beach, he was free from crazy sorrow. He refers to the streets too dead for dreaming. That's a direct reference to French symbolist poetry. He was free of it. It was really, really important for him for about a year. But then this is Dylan. So he soon transcended this and realized that he is an American artist. Could not use the kinds of things that French symbolist poets did. He owed them something, but he was done with them. Their streets, the streets of Paris, were too dead for dreaming. They couldn't inspire him. The next song, then, is Desolation Row. And with regard to Desolation Row, I want to mention a couple of a problem that I noticed over and over again at the recent Dillon conference. There's a wonderful conference called The World of Bob Dillon at the Bob Dillon Research Institute in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If any of you folks are ever in Oklahoma, I heartily recommend it. It's a remarkable place. But I noticed that when people were giving papers and were talking about Dillon, Imagine there were 500 Dylan fanatics here. They were talking about Dylan. A lot of people were just flailing around. They were really confused about what Dylan did, what they could say about Dylan. And I think the reason for that is that Dylan is, people don't realize this, but Dylan is phenomenally well-educated. He is very well-written, very well-read. He knows a lot about modern art. He knows a lot about European poetry. So there are two works that stand behind, if you will. Desolation Row is the next stitch in this. The two works are The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot and Paradise by Dante Alighieri, the great Italian poet. He's somebody that Dylan refers to in Tangled Up in Blue from 1974. These two works gave Dylan the idea of creating a space, which Eliot does both in The Wasteland and which Dante does in Paradiso. If you create a space, then what Dylan does in Desolation Row is to place people within that space in terms of their spiritual development. This is not something we can go into and talk about in detail because you really need the lyrics of the song in front of you. 
But just to give you one example, there's Casanova, there's Einstein, there's a whole series of famous people who in various ways express something about the situation of Desolation Row. Then from that space, where the poet says, Lady and I, they're in that, then the next song that completes this trilogy is Visions of Johanna, which I think is Dylan's supreme masterpiece. It's one of the greatest works of art in American culture in the 20th century. And what Visions of Johanna is, is something that a number of people have noticed, that Johanna is in and of itself a pun on Jehovah. So that gives us our first clue. This is a profoundly religious poem. It's about mystical visions of transcendence. It begins with the famous lie, ain't it just like the night? That phrase, the night, gives us a clue that this is a night song. And why does that matter? Because by the mid-60s, when Dylan wrote this, there was a whole tradition of the night song. In the 40s and 50s, there were a lot of songs that singers sang about the woman. The singer would be awake in the middle of the night, he would be pacing the floor, he's singing about the woman, but she's absent. Dylan took that tradition and spiritualized it. He made it a spiritual experience, which begins in specific reality, something specific, and then moves gradually, stanza by stanza by stanza, until the final stanza, when we have the key phrase, my conscious explodes. That is to say, transcendence occurs. The transcendence that's always been the goal of mystical poets. And here's the thing. Here's and something else that people don't realize about Dylan's evolution. Namely, what do you do after you've experienced and expressed transcendence? The answer is you painted yourself into a verbal corner. Because you can't say anything about transcendence. That's why it's transcendent. And this is my explanation for the radical change in style. From Blonde on Blonde to John Wesley Harding to Nashville Skyline. These songs are much simpler. They don't use electric guitars so much. They use provocative religious imagery, in the case of John Wesley Harding, and then finally much simpler songs of Nashville Skyline. So that's a long answer to that question, but it's a really complicated, important factor in Dylan's evolution. Why is there this significance for the titles of two Dylan's new key albums, bringing it all back home and Nashville skyline? Well, that fits right into what I've been <coughs> talking about. If you notice carefully about a number of Dylan songs, he puts himself in a liminal space like the beach in Mr. Tambourine Man. He and some unknown other person are standing in a doorway in Chimes of Freedom. The cover is street legal. Donna Dylan is looking, standing in the doorway, looking out into the street. He's neither inside nor outside. And that is really Dylan's situation as a creative artist as a whole. Because he is fascinated by European culture borrows from it in a variety of ways, but he is distinctly American. You could think of Dylan as being suspended between Pablo Picasso on one hand and Hank Williams on the other. He respects and admires both of them equally. But he doesn't have to choose because there's no point in choosing. So when he says he's bringing it all back home, the it all is Picasso in French symbolist poetry. He's learned from that, he's impressed with it, but he knows it's not distinctly American. So he does what a number of, Russian, of American artists have done, which is to bring it back home, to Americanize what he's learned in Europe and make it fit into an American context. That's very similar to the situation of Nashville Skyline. I've looked at Nashville Skyline all 50-odd years, the cover and so forth, and wonder what it meant. Finally, I, I think I have a sense for that. Why is it called Nashville Skyline and not Nashville, or not the studio? Because it, after all, it is a studio album. 
not a live elk. My answer is that Nashville skyline is what you see when you're approaching Nashville. You can't see the skyline when you're in Nashville. So this is another version of Dylan being neither inside nor outside. He's approaching it, but he's not there. He's all respected and admired Nashville musicians. He wanted to go to Nashville to record, but he wasn't part of Nashville. He wasn't part of the uh, country music scene, although he had a great friendship with Johnny Cash. He's both inside and outside. That's really the story of his creative life. What is the significance of the relationship between Dylan and Bruce Springsteen? Ah, mm-hmm. Here we have to understand something about the way great creative artists evolve. Remember I said a few minutes ago that it very often happens that very gifted boys, something a girl, but this is more clear with boys, grow up in a situation in which they have some kind of connect, disconnect with the father. The father's absent, the father's alienated, whatever. And so the boy goes out into the world and seeks a role model. But if that boy is going to be a, a mature artist, he can't go on imitating or admiring some father figure indefinitely. He has to eventually be his own man. That's what Dylan did. He says in the American Ep- Masters episode with uh, Martin Scorsese, I went through Guthrie. He admired Guthrie. He learned from what he what he took, what he needed from Woody Guthrie, and then went on. It's one of the key things people don't realize when they talk about Dylan's interest in Woody Guthrie. Now, I'm mentioning all that because that's the same thing that Bruce Springsteen did. He begins as an overt admirer of Dylan. He's just overwhelmed with Dylan. He says things like, Dylan's music is the greatest music there's ever been. Well, that's as it may be, but the point is that you can't become a mature artist going through life saying, Dylan is the greatest artist you've ever been. At some point, you have to become your own man. You have to create your own musical identity. And you can't do that by ignoring the great artists who've come before you. Bruce could never have done this by simply ignoring Dylan and just shoving him aside. Rather, what he does on Born to Run, his big breakthrough song, is to incorporate Dylan, Dylan-esque imagery and phrases like uh, runaway American dream. But he makes it his own. His sound on Born to Run is the Phil Spector sound the big, complicated sound with piano and organ and bass and drums, all the kinds of stuff that Dylan was never interested in. It's a bigger sound. It's a more complicated song. All these things come together on Born to Run to make Bruce his own man. And then what happened is now in our situation, really this begins in the early 21st century, is that Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen are, as it were, joined at the hip. They have a greater connection than any other artist in the history of rock and roll, you know, except Dylan McCartney and uh, Jagger Richard, who were in the same group. But these guys have an inner connection that will be there as long as both of them are still alive. But now they are their own, each of them is his own man. And there was a key moment I mentioned in Decoding Dylan, there's a YouTube clip of a concert from the 80s that I found. I can't find any more, but I did see it. In the clip, Dylan is on stage, he's playing, and he says, I want to bring out Mr. Bruce Springsteen. Notice that. Dylan knows exactly what he's doing when he says things like that. He doesn't refer to Mick Jagger as Mr. Mick Jagger. What he was doing by saying Mr. Bruce Springsteen is acknowledging that Bruce was now his own man. He was no longer as a student of Dylan's or an admirer of Dylan. He was a major star in his own right. It was one of the great, great moments in rock history. Your last chapter discusses Dylan along with Bruce Streisand and Willie and Allen. What do these three performers have in common? Well, this 
also has to do with the history of entertainment and of understanding Dylan not in isolation from his environment, but thinking about the various ways in which you can define that environment. One of them is to define his environment as part of the American cultural tradition of borrowing things from Europe, and I've talked about that. Another part of it is to understand Dylan's evolution as somebody who appears in the evolution of great Jewish musicians in America. What happened with Jewish musicians is something that occurred in two distinct stages. Between roughly 1880 and 1910, millions of Jews fled Russia because they were so terribly persecuted. They came to this country, primarily New York, and many of them stayed there. And as a result, it was these brilliant Jewish songwriters, such as Irving Berlin and Jerome Kern and Rodgers and Hammerstein, all these familiar names, who basically created the Broadway musical. The Broadway musical, as we know it, is a creation of these brilliant Jewish-Russian songwriters. However, with a few exceptions, like the comedians Milton Berle and Jack Benny, most of these brilliant Jews stayed behind the scenes. They were singers, they were songwriters, as in Rodgers and Hammerstein, other executives in Hollywood, like Harry Cohn, Irving uh, Feldman, and a lot of other people. But, in the early 60s, this started to change. Bob Dylan, Barbra Streisand, Woody Allen, all began in the same place at the same time. Small clubs in Greenwich Village, where they performed to raucous audiences. That's where they learned the craft, that's where they gained artistic confidence, and then they went on from there to create these amazing careers. Now, one of the things that we know about people who grew up in observant Jewish families is that whether they themselves are observant in later life, they grew up with a sense of tradition. Tradition is one of the theme songs of Fiddler on the Roof, which not coincidentally was playing exactly at the time. 1964, when Dylan was beginning his amazing evolution. So what you have with these three great, great performers is a way of relating tradition, understanding tradition, but also subverting tradition. So the obvious example with Dylan is that Dylan subverts the tradition of folk songs by bringing in his electric guitar and shocking people at the Newborn Folk Fest. With regard to Barbara Streisand, her whole career has been about acknowledging tradition and then subverting it. She was, for example, the first Jewish performer who won an Oscar for playing a Jewish character when she won her Oscar for Funny Girl. Moreover, she changed Broadway in a very fundamental way. She upended the Broadway tradition. Before Barbara Streisand, Broadway was a star-making venue. A lot of women, like Mary Martin and Ethel Merman and a lot of other major performers of the 40s and 50s, became stars on Broadway and then went to Hollywood and had major careers. After Barbara Streisand, that never happened. There are no major stars who've appeared out of Broadway after Barbara Streisand. Same thing applies to her movie Yentl, where she's in Poland. She wants to get an education. She's a girl, but only boys in that tradition were educated, she pretends to be a boy. It's the clearest example of the way she subverted tradition. With regard to Woody Allen, I describe in the book a whole series of his films that are set in the past, although Annie Hall's big breakthrough movie is set in the present. A very large numbers of his movies are either set in the past or deal with the past. A great example of that is Play It Again, Sam. Play it again, Sam. Woody Allen's movie begins with Woody in a movie theater. And what is he doing? He's looking at the ending, the famous ending, one of the most famous scenes in all of Hollywood movies, the ending of Casablanca. And he goes out of the movie theater thinking, oh, wow, Humphrey Bogart is so great. He's such a great lover. I could never be like that. Very much as Bruce Springsteen was talking about Dylan. So, of course, in the course of the movie, this 
Humphrey Bogart impersonator appears and gives Woody advice about how to deal with women, how to have more confidence and so forth. It's a classic example of the way in which Woody draws on tradition as Dylan in his way does, as Barbara Streisand in her way does. So what I'm saying is that one of the markers of creativity we talked about at the beginning is in fact ethnicity. Ethnicity is something that's especially important for the very large numbers of creative Jews in American culture. And these three Jews in particular were ones who broke with tradition. They became the major dominant on-screen or on-stage performers of roughly the last 50 years. So where can people find a link for your book? Uh, it's on Amazon. It's for sale on Amazon, www.amazon.com. Just go there and look for Decoding Dylan, and you'll find it. Hmm. You, can, you can get it both as, as a um, real, <laughs> legitimate, traditional paper book, but of course, in these days, people, so many people read books on readers and tablets and so forth. It's also available as an e-book, and you can get that at Amazon as well. Oh, I shall have a look at it. I, I sort of read the, um, you will. the, um, the burb of it. I mean, obviously, uh, I might get the uh, e-book version because it tends to be a bit cheaper in the long run. Mm, of course it is. Of course it is. And so many people find it convenient to read, like, on a train or when they're lying in bed or whatever. Sure. Uh-huh. I like that way you've been very in-depth with it. You've obviously done a very religious research on your topic. <laughs> I tell you, Mark, it's something that I've lived with for a long time. Some interviewers asked me how long I've worked on the book, and my flippant answer is 50 years, because that's roughly how long I've been listening to Dylan. I actually started only writing it a couple of a couple of years ago, but it's the I brought 50 years of listening to Dylan and thinking about his work and thinking about high achievers and yards together in the book. Huh? All right, you've said you were heavily influenced by Elvis as well. Have you considered doing an Elvis book? Well, um, here's the thing. This book, Decoding Dylan, is a follow-up from my first book on rock and roll called Rock Eras. And I have an extensive chapter on Elvis, and I have a particularly personal important connection with Elvis because I grew up in Tupelo, Mississippi, Elvis's hometown, and I saw Elvis. When he came to Tupelo in 1956, it was an amazing, amazing, life-changing experience. People who did not see the young Elvis live simply can't imagine how forceful and powerful his very presence was. When he came out on stage, it's like he projected a force field. It just knocked me back in my seat. It's an amazing thing. And get this, if you want to, you can actually see a version of that concert. All you have to do is go to YouTube and type in Elvis 1956, and you'll see the Super 8 black and white version of that concert, but it captures Elvis's energy and the excitement that he created in the crowd. It was, it was like a life-changing experience. It made, gave me my commitment to rock and roll, to popular culture, and I knew how important and powerful this was, and for all this time, I've been thinking, this is so important, I can't understand this. I want to share with the world my understanding of this music and how great the performers were. Well, I grew up with lots of types of music. When I was living in Southend, which is in Essex, England, I, I grew up with punk, fresh, folk, country. So I had, had lots of heavy influences. And I think it's a good thing. I think I try not to... I mean, I obviously am a bit of a 70s, 80s person because that's my era. I admit that. I mean, I, I don't like some of the more modern stuff. It sort of goes over my head a bit. But then uh, I'm probably just showing my age. Well, we all have our eras. We all have a sense for what music appeals to us and what doesn't. Personally, I, it's very important to me to rain, remain open to new music and new performers. And I mean to tell you, these women here, who are the big stars of popular music right now, are phenomenally interested in talented. Surely you've seen Lady Gaga do this, that, or the other thing. 
she is just as charismatic and fascinating and creative as any of the big stars from the past. Yeah, so I'm, it's very gratifying to me to know that creativity goes on, that gifted people appear and make careers for themselves. It's just an endlessly satisfying story. I like the fact that Lady Gaga can do it acapoco. Ella, Ella, you know, no, no singing, no music in the background. You know, she she's a true professional. She can sort of that's probably from her background, sort of like being able I, to, to. I bet it is. And since I'm so interested in what I call the sociology of popular music, and particularly with regard to ethnicity, people don't know that she is Italian. And I say, look, there are these groups of people who have made popular music, especially in America, so important. And creativity seems to be concentrated in certain ethnic groups, and one of them is Italian. So I understand Lady Gaga as the latest example of Italian greatness in popular music, beginning with Frank Sinatra and Madonna, and now Lady Gaga. It's like there's a continuity. That really, I'm serious. I believe there's something in the gene pool of Italians that gives them particular gifts and particular abilities, and it comes out over and over again. Yeah, I think there's, there's potential in the new, new uh, um, modern stars. So, do you watch Glastonbury? Do I watch what? Glastonbury. Like no, no, I know about it. No, I, no, I take that back. I have watched a couple, some episodes of it uh, a couple of years ago. Yes. Mm-hmm. I got the Cure this year. I, I, I like the Cure. They're very good songs. Yeah, and there's such a efflorescence, if that's the word, especially in British film. You know, in the 21st century, it seems to me that British film has dominated the world. I love the Harry Potter movies. Do you love the Harry Potter movies? I'm not a big fan, I must admit. I love the Harry Potter movies. It's such a great saga of our time. Uh, Then there's the Hobbit movies, you know. Ah, It's great stuff. Well, I used to watch Hammer Horror, Hammer House of Horror. That was my, (laughs) that's what I grew up with. and That's what got me into horror, basically, from those sort of days, because I'm a big fan of horror. And I think, like all things, they all, all cultures mix with each other. I think if you look at a p- good poem, you could write a good song, and vice versa. That's very true. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think that's what a lot of people don't realise. A lot of a lot of songs, if you just put it down like a poem, just don't do the music, just read it as a poem, you can think, wow. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah, that's why... That's why Dylan's lyrics are published. I have on the shelf over here to my right right now this big fat book of Dylan's complete lyrics. And I relied on it a lot when I was writing Decoding Dylan. Do you do anything else besides your books? Do I do what? Do you do anything else besides your books? Do do, uh, oh, yeah. I do a lot. Yeah, I have a lot of, of different interests. I'm an art educator. I give art lectures. And also, in the last year or so, I've been developing a career as a visual artist. That's different from being a photographer. I am a photographer. I take photographs, but then I digitize them and process them in a variety of ways that you can do now to create images that aren't photographs anymore. They're sort of halfway between being photographs and paintings. It's a modern art of photography, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, photography is the great visual art of our time. Frankly, I think there are more great photographers right now than there are painters. It may be that there, at some time in the future there will be a great surge of creativity in painting, but as I look at what people are doing in painting right now, I don't think it's a great time. For painters, but boy, it's a wonderful time to be a photographer. There are so many great, wonderful photographers. You can get these high-end cameras these days that will allow you to do just amazing things. I wish the camera had been invented earlier, so some of these painters that we know now, they could have gone out and gone, 
used it because they they would have seen the light and colour in a different way, like we would. They would think, ah, I like the way that light there is making that look slightly shadowed, and you know, like like you said, they would they would have gone over and over and saw every angle until they got that perfect picture. Mm-hmm. I think it's an intriguing idea. What would nineteenth century painters, for example, eighteenth century painters, have done if they'd had a camera? Yep. Uh-huh. Intriguing idea. It's a good Probably concept. For, that, that could be your next concept for your book. Excuse me. That could be your next concept for a yes. book. Yes. yes. I also have. I've been writing short stories. I'm interested in high achievers in the arts, so I write. Been writing some short stories. For example, speaking of Elvis, I wrote a short story called Elvis: The Secret Sessions. And my short stories begin with the question, "What if?" So here's a question I ask. What if Elvis, in the 70s, realized that he was gaining weight and that he was becoming more and more dependent on drugs, and what if he had decided to go into therapy? What would that have been like? So, I imagine a couple of therapy sessions in which Elvis went to therapy. It's it's one of those things we'll never know. I'm pretty sure it never happened. But what if? What if it had? What would it have been like? My short stories are my answer to that question. Hmm. Uh, did you like the um, Johnny Cash? The when when he did the versions of um, like Nine Inch Nails, the Nine Inch Nails song. Yes, yes. I think Johnny Cash was was one of the genuine, genuinely great artists, uh, American artists. Because I, I love that version. I think it's miles better than the actual real version. I mean, I know it's uh, usually about heroin, but the way he portrays it, it, he changes the emphasis of the song completely. Mm -hmm. That's what what great artists do. They change it around. They take songs and they change them in a variety of ways. I had an experience of that at the Dylan conference, as a matter of fact. Our guest of honor was a guy named Roger McGuinn, and only people like me who know a lot about rock trivia know that Roger McGuinn was one of the founders of a group called The Birds. Birds with a Y. And they were the first group that had a big hit by covering Mr. Tambourine Man. And when you listen to Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man, and you listen to their Mr. Tambourine Man, it's quite a different song. It has quite a different cadence. It has quite a different rhythm. It's, uh, it's yeah, I think that when artists cover a song that somebody else has done, they do that, I think, because they think to themselves, I can bring something of my own to this. I can transform it. I can tweak it in some ways and make it sound different. I think that's why they're attracted to doing that. I mean, it's a great honour for somebody to get their song covered. If I made the song out there and somebody covered it, I'd be like, well, thank you very much. I think, I think, I'm not too sure if I'm right, because I don't know quite too sure about songwriting royalties, but I think I've heard that you get more if someone covers your song than if you actually write the song. Could be. Certainly that's one reason Dylan is so rich, because so many people have covered his songs. Yeah. And it's one reason why Paul McCartney's a billionaire. Um, oh yes, I think he owns. He, I think at one time he owned the rights to Buddy Holly songs. Yes, yes. I don't know if he still does, but I know he did have all the rights. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And Michael Jackson yeah. bought the rights yes, to the I Beatles think song. Right. Yeah, I think I remember that. And then they bought. I think they bought them back. I think uh-huh. somewhere along the line. I mean, I get, I get confused when it goes down to royalties. And yes, yes, M- music publishing is a murky problematic business with lots of lawsuits and accusations and so oh, forth. Yeah. Tell me that. Because musicians are usually not very good business people. I, 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 I was talking to someone I know and he he allowed me to have a song. And uh, I said, oh, thank you very much. You know, from his, his album. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. But it was podcast because he gave me permission. And then uh, the next day, for three, week, for three months, I've taken off of YouTube because they put the song on YouTube. And I was, they said, sorry, this is not allowed. And I thought, ah, oh, it's because the record company said it's not allowed. You may own the rights, you may have written the song, you may have done everything with the song, but technically it's a record company that actually own it. Mm-hmm. 
That's why I'm saying it's, it's a murky business. There's been lots of lawsuits. Dylan Albert Grossman broke up in the 80s with bitter recriminations and threats of lawsuits. Uh, Bruce Springsteen had a real legal, terrible legal problem with his first manager and on and on like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, it's uh, very murky and it's caused, I know it's caused a lot of performers a lot of grief. Well, I've enjoyed a little chat too because I've, I've learned a lot more about Dylan than I ever knew in the first place, which is, which proves that I have been listening. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that. It's my mission to help understand, help people understand this great artist. I think that probably people have not been thinking about Dylan as hard or as long as I have. And if in my book I've conveyed some things to people that help them understand the songs, it's very gratifying. Now, I before I go, I normally like to do a unique sign-off um, for my show. Now, I think you should do a unique sign-off in the style of Dylan. Yeah? And what uh, should I do about Dylan? You can either um, quote a lyric or whichever you want to do. Yeah, all right. Um, there's, there's a song that I've just realized the significance of. It's all over now, oh, baby blue. And I believe that song is Dylan's way of saying goodbye to his adolescence. And it's a way of, that you and I can have for the end of our talk here. It's all over now, baby blue. But it's also a way of acknowledging the past. It's not that you're setting, you're negating the past and putting it behind you, but making a distinction between the present and the past. How's that? Cool. I like that. And here's mine to yours, Jim. Thank you very much for letting me talk to you about Dylan. I learned some more facts that I never knew. I should go out and read the book. And I advise you to do, do, do. I give it five stars. That's why I give it to me. And I wish I knew more. I should listen to Dylan more pre appreciatively. I can't say that more because my words have got tongue-tied. So thank you. Good night and goodbye. Okay. Good night, Mark.